Well, good morning, Christian Fellowship Church. Good to see you here. Some of us might be joining online. Maybe there's some hanging out downstairs. Um, In a moment, I'm going to ask you to pray with me, as I always do. It's no different that today I need your prayers. We need God's help to help us receive what He says uh, in His Word. And I need help to proclaim what He says, to not go beyond it. Um, we all need God's grace for that. I know I, especially in this moment, sense that, that need. Uh, by way of reminder, uh, we'll, when we're done with our service here, we'll break for lunch, and you all do whatever you're going to do for lunch, uh, and then we'll reconvene here uh, at 1 o'clock. That won't be live-streamed. It will be recorded, so if we have members or friends that need to want to see it, we can accommodate that, but we didn't want to sort of live stream that all over cyberspace. We want to just have open dialogue. People be free to ask the questions they need to ask, and so we can be honest with our opinions as elders, our thoughts on it as we try to bring scriptural principles to bear on difficult topics like politics, Uh, and we might feel like, boy, we're really tired uh, of this topic, uh, and, and all, all that we're seeing on the news and social media. Uh, but we don't want to be silent as a church. We don't want to leave our congregants ill-equipped as they approach not just the voting booth, but discussions. We want you to be able to have discussions and bring Scripture to bear on discussions and challenge with brotherly affection and with love and with virtue, uh, challenge views that are less than biblical. So I'm hoping that today, through a, what might feel like a barrage of Scripture verses, uh, in, in comparison to what we normally do, we normally just hang out in one passage, uh, but today we're going to see several different passages talk about some principles that we derive from the Bible that should guide us as we enter into political discussion. So would you pray with me? Father, we are thankful that we can depend on you as a guide Uh, And not just depending on your Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts, which you do, but also to recognize that you've given us instructions in your word, and that you have a lot to say about politics, and you have a lot to say about society and worldview and all of these things, Father. And so we pray that today, even though we can't cover, we can partly even scratch the surface Uh, In our time here this morning, we do want to at least be clear on some ground rules, at least be clear on some basics that we should all be able to agree upon, and may these things serve as a foundation for discussion so we don't talk past each other. I pray, Lord, for those who are in this congregation, maybe sitting here now, who feel like they are in company Uh, We don't want to be an echo chamber. We don't want to just preach to the choir. And so we pray that we would grapple with these things and look at the inconsistencies in our own positions and not just assume that because we're the majority opinion in this room that it's right. And I also pray, Father, for those who may be in here this morning who may get the sense that they are in the minority opinion here in this church, that they wouldn't feel like second-class citizens, that they wouldn't feel like they're being left behind, but instead they would feel engaged, respected, and brought into conversation. 
And may all of us submit and yield to what you say. And may you give us wisdom when it comes to bringing these scriptural principles to bear on difficult, debatable issues. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, no long intro needed. I mean, that basically was my intro. Uh, We need the Bible to guide our discussions. If we're Christians, we don't go to the Constitution first, the Bill of Rights first. Those things are important, but those things aren't the Bible. And so if you're talking with someone who's not a Christian, you need to help them see why you use the Bible. But when we're talking amongst Christians, we need to understand that the, the foundation is what the Bible does clearly say. And if we can't use and turn to the authority of Scripture, then uh, it'll be difficult to have any discussion at all. And so while we can derive many, many principles from Scripture, I want to talk about at least three. And so hopefully you got a handout. Uh, I know you saw it in the form of a booklet. Normally it's a one-page blank insert, and this time it's, it's got all kinds of info in there. That's just to help you as I move quickly through lots of verses for you to jot down what those verses are, a lot of them will be up on the screen, so you don't have to flip too fast in your Bibles. I mean, you can do that if you want to, uh, but we'll have a lot of the verses up on the screen for you. Jot those down, and you can refer to them again later. But I want to talk about three principles, and those principles will have some subpoints under them, but I want to talk about three basic principles that I think are clear in Scripture and that are going to help us as we approach Uh, And I know we keep saying it every election, right? This is the most important election. It's the turning point. Well, it's true. (laughs) Because things get worse. There's greater divisions. And uh, what is burdening me the most is the divisions we see within churches. I expect to disagree with non-Christians. But when I confront a brother or sister who is a believer, they're converted, they're in Christ, we're one in Christ, and they see things very differently, We've got to go back to uh, God's word and get clear on some issues in order to engage one another. And so the first principle to keep in mind, and if you're following along in in the blanks, this is the first bold print uh, point there. We need to vote for those who will do the best by praising good and punishing evil. We need to vote for those, when we're voting, when we're considering candidates, we need to vote for those who will do the best, who will do the best by praising good and punishing evil. And we're getting that from a couple different verses here, but the one that we'll put up here for you is 1 Peter chapter 2, 13 to 17. 1 Peter 2, 13 to 17. We're in a series on 2 Peter, but this harkens back to our series on 1 Peter from a few years ago. And 1 Peter Chapter 2, some of you, this is familiar passage. 13 to 17, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. What is the purpose of the emperor and the emperor's governors? Well, the purpose of it is to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So who does that the best? Now, last, well, last, back in 2016, I preached a sermon on the fact that character matters in leadership. And the reason why I did that is because I think a lot of times evangelicals, 
You know, when it's Clinton doing naughty stuff, it's like, oh, character, character. But then when your guy's doing naughty stuff, silence. And that's not good. That needs to stop. When your favorite candidate has some messed up stuff, say it's messed up stuff. You're a Christian first. But beyond that, if you've got two candidates and both of them are liars, both of them have a messed up track record, neither of them are truly Christian, no matter what they say, you have to bring into the principle, what is the government for? Now, the emperor is a jerk. <laughs> the emperor Peter's talking about is persecuting the very people that he's writing to. But Peter still says, even that guy, even the jerk, even the guy that is not Christian, who thinks himself to be God, even the guy that's going to be um, under God's wrath in an extreme way for thinking himself to be in Christ's role, their purpose is to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. They may not always get it right, but who does it better? For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Not fear the emperor. He does use a different word there because God first, but under God's leadership and under God's purview, there are emperors and there are governors, and the reason why we honor them is because in general they're there to praise those who do good, and to punish those who do evil. So as you consider candidates, do you have a candidate that has these things a little backwards, praising those who do evil and punishing those who do good? Because if someone's got that backwards, they're not doing their job, scripturally speaking. Now, no one's going to have it 100% accurate, but that's what you have to weigh. In general, who's praising what is good and who's punishing what is evil instead of punishing what is good and praising what is evil? Even though this emperor didn't have it all correct because he did punish some people for doing good. You don't have to turn here, but the similar sentiment is found in Romans 13. You can write that down and, and look at it later and put that in your arsenal of verses to use when this topic comes out. But Romans 13, the first couple verses there, 1 through 4. Let every person be subject to governing authorities. Why? Because they exist for a reason. They've been instituted by God, Paul says. And he says in verse 3, Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad conduct. He is a servant, verse 4. He is God's servant for your good. They're there to punish wrongdoers and praise those who do good. So we hear a lot of times, look, I'm not voting for a pastor, I'm voting for a commander-in-chief. I'm not voting for a pastor, I'm voting for a president. Well, I hope that's not a cheap excuse to just bypass the hypocrisies and very unchristian things about your favorite candidate and act like they don't exist. I hope that's not why we would say that. But there is some truth to that statement. You're not voting for a pastor, you're voting for a president. What's a president supposed to do? The president is supposed to Praise those who do good and punish those who do evil. That's the job. And so as we think about that, we think who can be the best servant in that regard? And Scripture condemns those who aren't just silent on what's good and what's evil, but have it backwards 
We'll put this passage up for you. It's very familiar, I'm sure. Isaiah 5, verse 20. You know what a woe is? Woe, not W-H-O-A, like, whoa, that's cool. But woe, like, you're dead. Woe to those who call good, who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. So, so the, the, the condemnation there is for those who have it backwards. And they're not just silent on what's good or evil, but they switch it. That should be very troubling, very concerning. I do want you to turn to this passage. I think it's the only one that we'll actually turn to in your laps and not on the screen and hang out there for just a minute. But Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 18 to 32, if you're writing it down in your notes, Romans 1, 18 to 32. This is scary stuff. The wrath of God, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, we're going to read, we're going to read straight through this, all right, 18 through 32. I want you to think about our nation. I want you to think about our country. I want you to think about the issues that we discuss when we think about candidates. The state of our nation. And our consciences can be so seared as to the evils that surround us. We're told that things are normal, that things are so normal that we can teach our kids the normalcy of these things. But look at God's view of it. It ticks them off. <laughs> the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, what do they do? They suppress the truth. That's not true. That's old. We've progressed now. I mean, I've got no problem with progressivism in terms of moving forward and learning. Of course, nobody has a problem with that. But when it means leaving behind biblical truth to embrace some other kind of truth, that's a problem. Because it invokes God's wrath upon a people, upon a nation, upon a person. And they should know it, not just because the Bible is around, but he says they should know it for a bigger reason, another reason. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God show, has shown it to them. How did he show it to them? Because they can Google Scripture? No. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived, not through the Scripture, even though that's true, but ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. You should be able to go and take a hike, and when you see the majesty of the mountains, the intricacy of nature, there should be something stirring inside of you. There's something bigger going on than just me. I don't get to just make up my own truth. There's something I'm reporting to here. There's a designer, a creator. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring. So what, what happens when you start with the premise, nah, I don't want to report to God. Nah, God is not a creator. All this stuff got here some other way. 
What, what path does that lead to? God taking his hands off and going, well, okay, well, if I'm not involved, then you're going to do what you want. I'm going to leave you to the natural results of your own stuff. What happens to a society when you buy into atheism? What happens into a society when God is not a part of your decision-making? God hands them over to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. If you've got two candidates and one of them has that right and the other one is saying, no, we should do that. God's wrath. Verse 26, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. It's not just the sexual stuff. Evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Those of you parents who like continue to let things slide, look at this list that culminates in just straight-up disobedience to parents. Kids who are in here, stop goofing around. This is a mark. Disobedience of parents is a mark of a society where parents can be completely cut out of the picture and children can decide their own gender. Without the parents' say at all, parents are completely cut out of it. How does disobedience to parents fit in a list like this? Well, of course it's fitting because that's the direction of a society that, that sloughs off anything to do with God. Verse 31, foolishness, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. I would find it very difficult to vote for somebody who on their social media, on their Twitter page, takes selfies with people doing this stuff. Now, you can look through this list and go, well, both candidates do a lot of this stuff. Yeah, that's true, but you have to weigh the two or consider a third. But we don't want to bypass this so we can get some social issue done that we want. Why? Because we literally incur God's wrath. That's why. And that's a big problem. Notice that the ungodly exchange in their wickedness. They make an exchange. First they start by verse 18. They suppress the truth. And the word exchange happens three times. Verse 23, verse 25, and verse 26. They exchange, they exchange, they exchange. They have the truth. They switch it. They swap it out for something else. And what is God's response? He gives them up. And that's three times. Verse 24, verse 26, verse 28. He gives them up. He gives them over. He hands them over. It can be translated to their own destruction. And so if you want to see the destruction of this country, the destruction of this nation, well, just keep voting for those who do more of this stuff and less of what God says is godly. I know that's debatable, but let's have the debate. And it starts here. This rampant exchanging is an idolatry that leads to a handing over by God. 
And we don't want to be here when that happens. And it is happening. So we live in a country where a lot of these things that are on this no-no list in Romans 1 are praised and applauded. For example, with regard to sexuality, as I've mentioned, where actors and singers can be thankful for abortion because it helped their careers take off. To stand up in front of a bunch of people and be applauded for saying, the reason why I got this award, the reason why I have this career path, the reason why I have so many listeners on Spotify, I'm so thankful is because I got to tear apart my baby in my own womb so I can have this career. You might go, these people aren't idolaters. Yeah, these ancient people used to worship you know, animals and idols. Now we're the idol. It's not like it's hidden. American idol. It's not... People chase fame and celebrity at any cost, even if it's murder my child for it, and it's not hidden, and it's not secret. You stand up and get applauded for it in this country. That's disgusting. So we hear a lot of people say, well, you know, one party likes to talk about sins A, B, and C, issues A, B, and C, but you conveniently ignore issues X, Y, and Z. This comes up a lot when you're called a one-issue voter, and I get that. A lot of times conservative Christians are accused of just paying attention to one issue, like abortion, or one issue like marriage and sexuality, and not pay attention to school education, not listen to equal funding as opposed to voucher, a voucher system. Now, we're not going to pay attention to that, police brutality. We're not going to listen to those issues we're just a one-issue voter. Okay, we shouldn't be one-issue voters, but we should be big-issue voters. That doesn't mean we don't pay attention to other issues. It means when you weigh things in a balance, some things are bigger than other things. That's scriptural. So the second point, flowing, I think, out of the first, the first one is we need to Vote for those who will do the best by praising good and punishing evil. The second point, the second principle, <clears throat> of course, these are not the only principles. These are just the three we're looking at today. The second principle in this line of thinking, I think, is that not all sins or social evils are equal. Not all sins and not all social evils are equal. They differ. They're different. You've heard it said that sin is sin. Well, what that means is even the smallest sin makes you guilty enough to be separated from God. But sin is sin does not mean that God views all sin the same. That's just unbiblical. God does not view all sins the same. Now, is it true that if you break one law, you broke all the laws? Yes, it means you are a lawbreaker. But it doesn't mean that you were guilty of each and every individual law that you didn't break. It just means that you were in the same category of guilt as someone who broke three of the laws. Or two laws that you did, you broke these two and they broke those two. You're in the same category of separation from God, in complete need of God's grace, and you are not an inch closer to God than anyone else apart from God's grace. That's what that means. But it doesn't mean that God views all sin the same. This is important enough to have four subpoints. <laughs> to it. There are four Ps, all right, just to aid in our memory. 
Not all sins and not all social evils are equal. They differ in levels of perversity, prevalence, punishment, and perspicuity. I'll unpack that. They differ in levels of perversity. They differ in levels of prevalence. They differ in levels of punishment. And they differ in levels of perspicuity. We'll, we'll talk about that, of course. First, they differ in levels of perversity. We'll throw this up on the screen. But Matthew chapter 7 is one of many verses that I thought we could turn to. Matthew chapter 7, <clears throat> verse 3. Of course, this is where Jesus is talking about not judging in a way that you're not ready to be judged by. People think that Jesus is saying you should never judge. No, he's saying judge only in the way that you're ready to be judged by. Don't be a hypocrite. We're supposed to judge one another, but you can't tell somebody, hey, you shouldn't do that if you're one doing it or doing it to a worse degree. And you remember that when he describes the, hip the hypocrisy, he says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye and do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Notice Jesus doesn't say, why do you point out the speck in, the, in your brother's eye and you don't point out the speck in your eye? He intentionally uses a small thing in the person you're judging and a huge thing hanging out of your own eye. So it's not just that you're calling out a sin in someone else and you've got the same sin. You do it worse is the implication of this. Otherwise, it would be a speck in a speck or a log in a log. But he moves from a speck of sawdust to a plank because through hyperbole, he's showing the, the steep hypocrisy of religious people who like to take a fine-tooth comb and go over the lives of other people, and they're completely rotten inside. And that's the kind of hypocrisy he's after here, where somebody's got it worse than the person that they're judging. You don't have to turn there, but you can write it down. Exodus 32 Verse 30, Exodus 32, verse 30, you remember when we were going through Exodus? Moses goes up to this mountain, he's receiving the law of God, and he comes back to what? They are worshiping a golden calf, right? They pulled off their jewelry, and Aaron helped them make it, and it's this completely ridiculous scene, and if you were reading Exodus for the, for the first time, it'd be out of nowhere. And Aaron, Moses' brother, is leading it? He's not courageous enough to tell them No. They want it so bad. They want to cast off God so bad, even though he just rescued them. It's such a disturbing episode. Moses comes down and he tells them, you have sinned a great sin. What does that mean if all sin is sin? You can't have a great sin if all sin is the same. No, this was a worse atrocity. This was a worse rebellion than other rebellions. This is a worse kind of sin, a, a higher grade of sin, so that Moses can call it, you've sinned a great sin. Of course, not all sin is just the same as another. You can appeal to your own consciences, the biblical word for common sense, is brutally beating a toddler the same kind of sin as accidentally scraping someone's car while it's parked and not, not leaving a note. That's just common sense, that beating a toddler half to death is not the same as that. Now, it's wrong, 
You, could, you can make an argument. That's, that's messed up. You should leave a note that's something you did. You made damage. You caused damage. It's just not the same. You know it's not the same. And God doesn't view it the same. What kind of God would we serve if he viewed those two things exactly the same? They're not the same. One is more perverse than the other. Murder is not on the same level as stealing a pack of gum. They are different. Both are enough to make you guilty. They're different in the weight of guilt. They are different in how perverse they are. Second, not only do they differ in levels of perversity, but they differ in levels of prevalence. You remember in Genesis 18, in Genesis 18 where God is going to destroy Sodom and Abraham is pleading with God and Abraham is like, well, what if there's 45, right? Now, I don't know what the starting population was. Probably a small place uh, compared to our, our cities today. But a lot of people. And Abraham says, well, God, what if there's, if you permit me to ask, what if there's 45 righteous people? Will you still destroy the city? And God's like, no, as bad as it is, even though there's thousands of wicked people, if there's just 45 righteous people, I'll leave it. For the sake of the 45, I don't want to destroy the righteous with the unrighteous. I'll leave the city. And then he says, well, what if there's 40? I won't destroy it. Oh, God, I'm sorry to speak up again, but what if there's 30 people? No, I won't destroy it. Lord, I'm sorry to just keep this going, but what if there's 20 people? No, I won't destroy it. What if there's 10? If there's 10, I still won't destroy it. 10 righteous people are enough to save a city from being destroyed in this episode. And the point there is, this place is so corrupt, so wicked, you don't even have 10 righteous people. Now this matches a lot of scripture we have where God is waiting for the wickedness of a city or a people to reach a certain level, and then he destroys them. That means a city can be worse tomorrow than it was today. But if sin is just sin, it can't be worse. No matter what you do or how much of it you do, if sin is just sin, everybody in this town, no one's killing, there are no murders, there's no kidnaps, everyone is sexually faithful, no marriages ever end in any kind of rotten divorce or anything like that, everything is just going dandy, but they really, they shoplift a lot. Forget it, brimstone, hail, kill them, you know, people are dying. No. But it can get to a level through the kind of list that we see in Romans 1 where God does that. So if a city can get to the point where it is unrighteous enough to be destroyed by God, that means there are levels of sin in terms, and this one in terms of prevalence, how prevalent it is. And Genesis 18 is sort of the reverse uh, of that, where Abraham is actually starting with how many righteous. So he's not asking how many unrighteous there have to be, but he, he knows it's pretty bad, so he's just starting the opposite way. But the math is the same. You can have so much unrighteousness that it warrants God's judgment. And so, we know this, I think, to be instinctually true, that a town with murders, with more murders, is worse place to be than a town with less murders. It's Not only that, but two people can be guilty of the same sin, they did the same sin, and one is still guiltier than the other one. One is still more corrupt than the other one, even though they did the same sin. And that, I think, speaks to prevalence, how deep it's gotten, how far it's gotten, how badly those sins are committed. 
In Ezekiel 23, you don't have to turn there, I'll just mention this one quickly, but in Ezekiel 23, he's talking about, uh, the passage is talking about Ohelibah, uh, who was whoring, the, the text says, saw this, but she became, it says, more corrupt than her sister in her lust. They're, they're doing the same act, but one sister was more corrupt than the other sister, doing the same act. Why? Well, because she did it more. Prevalence. She did it more often, more frequently. You can think of John 19.11. We'll put this one up here on the screen. John 19.11, of course, Jesus is facing his trial, and he's in front of uh, uh, Pontius Pilate. And Pilate is guilty for handing Jesus over, but he's not as guilty as the priest who handed him over. Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. So the person who delivered Jesus to Pilate, Pilate's going to deliver him to the soldiers for crucifixion, which is worse you're, you're delivering, one guy's delivering Jesus to a person who's going to make a decision. The other guy is making the decision. But the first one has a greater sin. They're both handing Jesus over, but the first one has a greater sin. Now we can unpack the reasons for that, but you can see it plain in the text. One guy has a greater guilt than the other guy because of the degree to which they're doing the thing that they're doing. So prevalence matters. And when we're thinking about Sin, when we're thinking about a government or a governor or a president who is calling evil, evil and good, good. When we're talking about evil, sin or social sins, we have to recognize they're not all the same. They differ. The third way they differ is in degrees of punishment or levels of punishment. There's worse judgment in store for people who are more guilty than others. Don't know if you knew that. Anyone outside of Christ is going to hell. And the lightest punishment in hell, you don't want that. It is God's wrath. But everyone in hell doesn't receive the same level of punishment. So we'll put a couple verses up here quickly for you to look at. The first one is in Matthew 11. Matthew 11, 23. And here Jesus is, uh, here we go with the woes again. And he's talking to Chorazin and Bethsaida. Jesus did all these awesome works in front of them and they don't want to listen. And he says, woe to you, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Now, there's, here's a couple cities in the Old Testament that were really, really bad. And you know they're bad. You grew up reading the Old Testament, he's telling them. You grew up reading, those are the bad guys. Those cities were so bad, they're so evil. He's saying, but they didn't have me walking through it. And I'm walking through here doing stuff in front of you. You have a higher degree of responsibility because of more exposure to truth. And you still deny it. So you're worse than they are. Not just that you are worse. 
but in the day of judgment, you will have it worse than that city. Judgment, God's wrath poured out for eternity, will be more bearable for those Old Testament evil cities than for you. I don't think that's an empty threat. I think that's Jesus explaining what's going on with judgment. Then again in chapter 12, 41 to 42, we'll put this up here for you. Chapter 12, 41 to 42, similar deal. Where Jesus is talking about Nineveh, you remember that wicked city that had Jonah preach them, and Jonah preached a really whack, cheap, minimalist sermon, and they still responded to it. Jesus comes and gives way more light. He's not just giving a cheap sermon. He's walking through, explaining things, explaining the kingdom, calling people repentance, healing people, exercising demons. He's much greater than Jonah. But the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. And so he's comparing them to Nineveh and saying, you're worse. You are worse than Nineveh. You know why? Because I'm a greater level of truth, and you still deny it. That makes it worse, and that makes your punishment worse. So there's numerous verses on this to explain that not all sin is just sin, but it's clear that they will not be judged with the same intensity. One more really quickly is Luke 12. I hope you write that down because I want you to be able to go back to these and I want you to be able to ingest it and explain it, help your kids understand it. And I guarantee this is going to come out in the Q&A. This is, this is missed in our discussions. Luke chapter 12 and then verses 47 and 48. Jesus is talking about, uh, he, he's, ex he's explaining to Peter how Jesus essentially is going to come back and check on the workers as they were working. Uh, and there's a master who comes back to his unfaithful servants. And in verse 47 it says, That servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. You see, Jesus is making the same point. The more truth you have, the more exposure you have to what God is saying is right and true, and you still reject it, your beating will be more severe. He says in verse 48, but the one who did not know and did what deserved the beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required, and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. The, the principle is very simple. The more truth you reject, the greater your level of punishment. The more of God's wrath you will endure. The more truth you reject. Now, if you still, do, if you still sin out of ignorance, you still sin, but you didn't have as much exposure to the truth as the other guy, you still get a beating, but it's lighter than the one who had more truth. That's Jesus' principle here. It's very concerning that the more we find out about what is going on in the womb, the greater our guilt as a nation and as a generation. We know much more than we did before about life, but we still sacrifice it for career. That's a greater level of punishment. And then fourthly, 
they differ in levels of perspicuity. Perspicuity. You can write it wrong and correct their spelling later. But it just means clarity. It just means how clear something is. It's a term used by theologians to refer to the fact that Scripture is clear enough to understand. Scripture is clear enough. You don't need a special prophet to come down from a glowing mountain to tell you what it means. You can, through ordinary means, examine Scripture and understand it. So even though the Westminster Confession of Faith is not a standard that we hold to officially here, I do like to refer to it because there's so much in it that is so rich and so great. We're going to put two statements on the screen. The first one explains what perspicuity is. You need to know this. You need to know this. Here's how the Westminster Confession of Faith, 1.7, how they describe the language is a little old. We'll, we'll, We'll clarify it. Here's how they define what perspicuity is. All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves or alike clear unto all, yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or another that not only the learned but the unlearned, right? So not, it's not, not only the super-educated can handle Scripture, but even people who aren't educated, in a due use of ordinary means, you don't just crack it open and you understand it fully, you might have to do some work. The ordinary means there is interpretation, digging, comparing things together. This is why we have classes sometimes on how to study Scripture. They may attain unto a sufficient understanding. That doesn't mean you'll be able to know everything you'll ever be able to know, but a sufficient understanding. And notice how that paragraph starts out by saying not everything is as clear as other things. Did you catch that? Not everything in Scripture is as clear as other things in Scripture. So what are you supposed to do with the, clear, the unclear parts, the parts that aren't as clear? Well, 1.9, the second one, we'll put this up here. Here's the solution. The infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. How do you find out what an unclear passage is saying? Compare it with other clearer passages in Scripture. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold but one, in other words, it can't just mean anything you want. Scripture means one thing. It must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. So here's the principle, and I'll explain why I'm going here. You're going to have passages in Scripture that mention something, but doesn't unpack it at, at, you know, in any real depth. It kind of mentions it, but it doesn't really unpack it. You're going to need other Scripture passages to help you understand what that less clear passage is saying. Not, scripture is not as clear on everything as it is on other things. Right? Okay, if that's true, then that means that certain things we have to hold with a greater level of faithfulness because of that clarity than other things. This applies to what Scripture has to say about sin. If Scripture is more clear on some things than other things, that means Scripture is going to be more clear about some sins than other sins. Right? Scripture is going to have some sins where it's a little debatable, not exactly sure what it means. We've got to dig and unpack and use more of that ordinary means. And then other sins, Scripture says it and says it and says it and says it, and there's no mincing of words. You know that sin. And we need to maintain that understanding as we go into things. So here's a non-political example. 
Is it sinful to get a tattoo? Well, here's a verse, Leviticus 19.28. Leviticus 19.28. You read that really quickly and you're like, oh, snap, I probably shouldn't get a tattoo. But then you see Christians walking around with tattoos. I think we have members here with tattoos. Like, I don't have one, but I've never stood up here and preached that you shouldn't get one. Are there congregations that say you should never have a tattoo? Yep. Are there congregations where the pastor is like up to the ears and it looks like he just came out of, you know, Division Three, lockup? Like, yeah, those guys are around. It's debatable. I'm not saying you can't have a stance on it. That's, we've got to go to Scripture. What does it mean, cutting the skin? What does it be, is it connected to mourning? Is it a pagan ritual? If it was then, is it still a pagan ritual? Right? There's not a ton of verses on tattoos. You've got this one in Leviticus. You've got to figure it out. But what about adultery? It's in the Ten Commandments in Leviticus. It's in the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy. It's in Jesus' uh, statements about divorce where he makes it really clear that adultery is wrong. It's on the Sermon on the Mount. It's in Romans, it's in James, it's in 2 Peter. Adultery is not, at, is, is not with the same level of unclarity as tattoos. Gambling and murder, it's not as clear. So some things are clearer. That doesn't mean the unclear things, we, should, we shouldn't address it. We should really weigh it. I think before you decide to get a tattoo, this isn't just about what mom and dad like. You should really think about what does Scripture have to say about it. I'm not saying don't visit it. But while that might take you a while to figure out, it shouldn't take a while to figure out that God hates marital unfaithfulness because he's made it so clear. So the perspicuity that I'm talking about is how clear Scripture is on certain sins over other sins. And that means if some sins, taking all three of these together, these, three, these four Ps, if some sins are more perverse, more prevalent, more punishable, and more perspicuous, then we can't simply just say, well, this party has these sins, but that party has those other sins. If one candidate has these ten sins, but they're a little more debatable, they're less abounding, they're not as evil, and another candidate only has two sins, but they're clearly evil, and they're more evil, and they're astoundingly prevalent, that should tip the scales. This isn't just a simple math. Things weigh differently because sins aren't all just the same. So we have to weigh these things. And so, of course, this isn't about just one issue voting, but it is about big issue voting, and you don't get to take something like the atrocity of infanticide and sweep it under the rug because you don't like the school system. Find me the verse for equal funding, and I'll show you the verses for sanctity of life. One is bigger than the other. Now, that doesn't mean I don't want to talk about school funding. That doesn't mean I don't care about schools. I don't care about minorities. I don't care what's happening in the inner, inner city. That doesn't mean that. But it's really hard for me to engage with you if you're willing to take this huge issue that we should be linking arms and fighting against and sticking it in the closet so that we can just talk about who's the one-issue voter now. You only care what's happening in your school district? You want to talk about, well, you only care about the womb. We care about getting it to the tomb, from the womb to the tomb. How can you care about from the womb to the tomb if they're not even making it out of the womb? Let's talk together about those other issues, but one of them is clearer in its perversity, 
in its prevalence, and it's more punishable. The third principle, which won't be as long as the previous. We should only cast judgment where the sin is clear. Since we've established that not all sin is sin, and not all sin is as clear as others, there's another sense in which we need to be clear. When we accuse someone of sin, you better know that that's actually true. That's just Christian. We'll put these on the screen, three verses, all on one slide. Ephesians 4.31, Colossians 3.8, 1 Peter 2.1. Just read through it quickly. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander, and the Greek word behind that is the word blasphemy, let those be put away from you along with all malice. Colossians 3.8. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Some of us, the last thing we'd ever do is cuss somebody out, but we'll find it really easy to just pass on a meme that slanders. Stop! So put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Uh, The first two words, slander, is the word blasphemy, and the third word is different, but they essentially mean the same thing. Blasphemy means speech that denigrates, defames, reviles. The word Peter's using there is speaking ill of someone else. Now, it can't mean never say anything negative about anyone. It can't mean that. You know why? Because then we would never be able to rebuke, correct, admonish, judge. I mean, if you see someone doing something wrong, you're supposed to go up to them. Matthew 7, like I said, is not don't ever judge. It's judge the right way, not being a hypocrite. Once you remove the plank in your eye, Jesus says, then you can see to the speck. You're supposed to do eye surgery. Get your vision clear first. You walk into that operation room, and the surgeon's like, oh, I can't really see today. I'm just kind of really messed up. I forgot my glasses at home, but uh, where, are we, where are we cutting you open here? See straight first, then you can help other people. And sometimes by helping other people, you have to judge them. Think about the the words that Paul has to say to some of his congregations in in his letters. He spanks them. And so it can't mean you can't say anything negative. So what it means is going beyond the facts with a motive to destroy. Going beyond the facts with a motive to destroy. You want to take the person down, and so you're going to take a clip. You're not checking the context. You didn't hear the whole speech. You got it from your favorite news source, and you're going to just display it on social media and create a narrative that may or may not be true. Now, it might be true, but check it. Because we are not slanderers. We are truth-tellers. And we honor the emperor. We honor the governors. We honor the senators. We honor the VPs, etc. We don't honor them when we defame them by calling them things that may not match what they actually are. So avoid slander. Two more things to avoid quickly. Avoid slander. Second, avoid hearing only one side. Avoid hearing only one side. Proverbs 18, 17. Look. Simple. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. Like, all the things that you are buying into online, in your classes at university, 
cross-examine those. Everybody sounds right until someone else comes along and says, oops, fact check. So fact check. I'm talking to both sides of the aisle here. Know what it is that you're talking about. Dig behind those resources. When you're reading an article and you see things hyperlinked, don't just be like, oh, he must have a resource. Check it, because it might be some dorky resource that isn't any more authoritative than the one you're reading. It is Christian to cross-examine. It's biblical wisdom, allowing your own position to be checked and cross-examined before making a statement. And then finally, we want to avoid slander. We want to avoid hearing only one side of an issue. We also want to avoid trusting sources too quickly. We want to avoid trusting sources too quickly. I won't go on about this, but real quickly, uh, Proverbs 12.5, the thoughts of the righteous are just, the counsels of the wicked are deceitful. Especially when you're leaving church to find counsel as to who to vote for and what's right and what's good and what's true. Be careful about your sources. Because, of course, their agenda is not the same as ours. Of course, their worldview is not the same as ours. On both sides of the aisle. And so you need to make sure that you are weighing the counsel that you're getting from news sources and from your friends around the water cooler and from your professors at school. Weigh those sources with biblical insight. So those three principles, I'm hoping, can guide a lot of our discussion uh, this afternoon, after lunch, when we come back here for our Q&A. I'm hoping that we can use these as a, as a foundation, a starting point. And I just want to conclude by reminding you of the gospel. We've been moving through Second Peter. Second Peter explains that you are, you, if you're in Christ, you've repented, you know that you are guilty of all the law because you're guilty of any of it. You know you're separated from God, but you've put your faith in Christ and you've repented. Then you've been given and granted a faith of equal standing. So we will treat each other with equal respect in this room. We will treat each other with equal respect in church because we have a faith of equal standing here. So even if you're a new Christian, we want to hear your voice and we want to respect your voice. As those of you who have been Christian for a long time, we definitely want to hear what you have to say because we are one in Christ, and none of us got in here through our own merits or how wise we are or how much fact-checking we did. We're, we're, we're one because of the grace that we receive through Jesus Christ. But we need to remember that we are truth-tellers, and we tell that truth with wisdom, with love, with patience, with discernment, but we still need to talk about truth. And if we can't, as brothers and sisters adopted together into one family, talk about difficult things together, then we're relegating those difficult discussions to circles outside of church where that unity isn't guaranteed. And so we want to be a place where we can talk with one another about these things. And me and the elders are going to be up here, not as experts. Are you going to be able to bring something up that we go, oh, I, I need to research that more? Yeah, probably. You know, But we want to help lead a discussion that can help us take biblical principles and press them into actual actual issues together in brotherly affection because we're adopted by Christ into this united family. Let me pray as the worship team comes up and closes us in a song. Father, we are grateful to you for the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we are a family, we are a, we are a unit together, uh, but we have to work to maintain that unity 
we have to work at listening. We have to work at having difficult conversations. Uh, but God, we want to do it keeping in mind that you hate sin and that the church should be a beacon of light and truth wanting to see evils subside and a prevalence of good instead. Lord, as we close in this song, may you massage into our hearts the truthfulness of our unity and our gratitude toward you for your grace. And as we are uh, preparing to leave here, would you put our hearts in the right place? And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.